Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Welcome back to another Long Form Thursday episode where we are going to get geeky about a topic that I'm sure many of you have been uh, trying to figure out. Uh, I like to try to bring experts into Suncast to explain for you things that uh, things that are new and cutting edge, bleeding edge in some cases in the marketplace. Hey, if you're new here, I just want to say thank you because you are investing the only non-renewable asset that you've got, and that's your time. I don't want to take that for granted. I'm so honored that you've chosen to be here. And if you're uh, a Suncast faithful, part of the Suncast tribe, thank you once again. I know that you're going to love this interview. Today's entrepreneurs are Texas solar pioneers. And save the wonders of LinkedIn, I probably would not have found them. Uh, I'm incredibly grateful for the story we're going to get to tell today uh, because Craig Lavalvo uh, chose to post something on LinkedIn. So if you're hearing this, take our word for it. Using LinkedIn can get you uh, free publicity in this case, but also it can help develop relationships. I, uh, I'm sure that the story you'll hear about how and why Craig posted and who shared it and how I got to find out about it will inspire you to share your story and to not just stay cooped up in your neck of the woods. I'm so grateful to Craig and Mark for sharing their story with us today about how they are developing the largest floating photovoltaic system in Texas. And if you like what you hear today, be sure that you subscribe to the show as that's going to ensure that you won't miss our twice weekly content just like this. Of course, you can always check out more than 375 additional founder stories and startup advice at mysuncast.com. While you're there, please subscribe to the newsletter because that's where we tell you all about our special events like the upcoming Solar Power International in New Orleans. I hope you're going to be there for now. Get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Okay, as I teed up in the intro, my friends Craig and Mark have been developing a floating solar project in Giddings, Texas that is the first solar project to be finished with 2,600 solar panels floating on a pond out in the middle of Texas, an agricultural operation And that's why you're here, because you want to hear all about that story. Craig and Mark have a fantastic story. We're going to dig into it. They're both seasoned solar developers and engineer and operators of solar systems, having helped companies like SunPower and Meridian build mini megawatts and Amazon and others build mini megawatts. But we'll get into that. First, I want to say welcome, Craig and Mark, to the show. Thank you. Morning. Absolutely fantastic to see you this morning. Thanks for taking the time to swing by the studio and help us better understand how this all came about. Mark, I, uh, I, I identify a lot with you because we've shared, we've swapped some, some sales stories. I'd love if we could just start with you on how and why you started your solar journey. Like, when did you get on the solar coaster? Can you take me back to that moment where you realize this is how you're going to spend the rest of your career? Yeah. So actually, um, I was studying in Puerto Rico and Hurricane George hit and Mm. um, all my neighbors started like pulling out their solar panels and their battery systems to run like their refrigerators and computers. And I was like the whole time I was like, I thought solar was only for like a calculator. I didn't know you could actually power (laughs) like equipment with it. This is like 1998, right? Yeah, this is a 98. Actually, exactly. Uh, I was actually really at University of Texas and I was kind of like studying abroad. So when I went back to UT, I was part of the solar car team, um, no which was a cool experience. Yeah. And um, but to be honest with you, when I talked about it with my father, he was like, I don't know, solar. He was like, you know, you're pay- you're spending all this money to go to engineering school. You need to get a job, you know, at a blue chip <laughs> company, like one of the big tech companies. So um, mm-hmm. I went and got an internship with IBM and 
after I graduated, I started working at IBM. I had a roommate, however, that um, worked for um, a company called Meridian Solar. I would he my roommate didn't have a car, so I was always going to pick him up. I was like stopping in because they were always having like beers in the office, and um, I started talking to the owner, uh, Andrew McCullough, who's like a pioneer in Texas solar, and sure um, I started helping do a little bit of design for him. Long story short, they kind of wrote me in and um, I started working with those guys um, full time. And um, I did everything. I actually went out in the field and did the installs, you know, and from that whole experience, um, honestly, I was kind of looking at the racking system at the time. And I was like, man, there's gotta be a better mousetrap for this. And I met an architect by uh, his, his name is Craig um, Overmiller, and mm. he had started a company um, called Texas Solar Power Company. It was the very first solar power company in Texas, I believe, and right. that did actually installs. He had partnered with a, a general contractor named Joe, basically doing little home and cabin installs. Um, but they both had careers in architecture and general contracting. And um, they wanted someone to come in and really kind of get their solar company up off the ground with the promise that we would work on a racking system to where we could develop a product and essentially sell. So Austin Energy released a rebate program that at the time was $5 a watt. And so um, and they could get a rebate up to, I believe, $15,000. And granted, this is when solar panels was like, I want to say like $3 a watt, the solar panel Mm -hmm. itself. What year, roughly? So 2004. Okay. Yeah, probably like at that time, solar panels probably $4, $4.50 a watt. Yeah, you're right. It was probably like $3.50, $4 a watt. But um, Texas Solar, man, we crushed that rebate. I mean, we there was probably at the time now about – uh, when that rebate came out, there was a, probably a good like five, six companies, and we probably mm-hmm. got like sixty percent of that rebate. Mm-hmm. So, and you know, we were just kind of trugging along, doing residential, still off grid systems, and then you know there was that big market crash in like two thousand and seven, and then in two thousand and eight, the Aura funds came out. And they hit Texas through a block grant that came through our state energy conservation office, SECO, and it allowed public entities to get a $2 million grant as long as they matched it with 20%. So a lot of the local rebates from the utility were making that match of the 20%. And so the projects were 100% incentivized. And again, we, we went from probably like a $7 million company to like a $21 million company, like literally within like six to yeah nine months. But, you know, with all that work and money coming through, uh, it started changing the dynamics of our relationships of the partners. And there was a lot of stuff that kind of went on. Long story short, I sold my shares back to, I I became partners of that company and I sold my shares back to the owners. And I went to go, I went back and started working for Meridian again. And I spent five years there. We developed primarily CNI projects um, all throughout the country. We did some great projects for like Apple, a company called Unify, GM. We actually did a very large 20 megawatt project in Arizona. But, you know, I kind of started seeing the writing on the wall here in Texas with what is called like community solar projects to where you're developing small greenfield projects and selling what we call here in Texas, a DG project. DG in Texas is anything less than 10 megawatts, but anything less than one megawatt, the customer can get what is called a four CP savings, which is they can also get savings on the demand and transmission. This is kind of Texas specific, right? Yes. Yeah. Do you remember what the CP stands for? I know we talked about it before. It was a little, it's like a, Texas thing. Capacity. I'm not very familiar with it. Capacity. Okay. And so the writing was on the wall was that if we could develop projects and sell them to small cities and electrical co-ops, possibly communities, 
that was kind of uh, the way to go to where we really wouldn't need a local incentive. We could develop a project and um, show them savings um, through the cell of energy and the 4CP savings. So I actually went to go work for a retail electric provider. At the time, it was called Circular Energy. They, the retail arm was called ProPower. And we were developing mm-hmm. projects where we were selling energy into the index market and we were buying energy back from ourselves and then selling it to their rate-based customers. A lot of the projects, though, were like large CNI customers where we were selling energy to the utility, which was sleeving the energy back to those CNI customers. So, sorry, what does that mean? They were sleeving the energy? It's basically like virtual net metering, or it's basically mm. where um, we are tying somewhere on their distribution grid and they're metering it. Mm. And then they're actually doing the accounting to where they're showing the actual savings on a 15 minute interval basis in terms of energy and in terms of um, demand. uh, So they can get that four CP savings. And so here in Texas, there's really not like a, a regulatory body that manages that virtual net metering process. So you really have to work that out with the local utility and in terms of the interconnection and in terms of actually how they physically do the accounting and structural structure, the, the billing of it. And so it gets a little complicated because you're kind of in Texas, you have municipal owned utilities, you have electrical co-ops, and then you have a deregulated market. And we would target the munis, the, the municipal owned utilities and the electrical co-ops mm-hmm. because they typically had more expensive power because they were buying power from an IPP and then reselling it to the customers. And so what we were trying to do is find people that had the most expensive power and try to sell them, um, you know, solar energy cheaper than what they're buying retail. But then we also had to work with the utilities. So essentially the utility body would essentially put a little bit of markup on our price to the customer just for what they were over. And then also get paid for the, uh, the interconnection. While working at um, Circular Energy, developing community solar projects, we had one particular project for Tito's Vodka in Austin. And um, right away, Circular, we started experiencing where we were doing so many projects and we were using like local solar installers that A, they couldn't keep up with the amount of business demand that we were seeing, but also their quality work really wasn't that good. But they really didn't have the, the manpower to this project there. So to look at larger electrical contractors that basically had a build and mechanical component. I met Craig for the first time. He was working at Brandt, the Brandt companies, which is a design build mechanical, electrical, and plumbing um, contractor here in Texas. They're one of the largest here in Texas. I was trying to get solar built at Brandt. I got the, the higher-ups at Brandt. I was running all of the electrical division in South Texas, and uh, I wanted to build, bring solar into, into Brandt because we had the resources. We could, you know, I saw the market in Texas was starting to boom, and uh, I wanted to be, get a part of it. So one of our sales guys introduced me to Mark, who was bidding out this project uh, at Tito's um, Vodka. And so Mark and I talked. We kind of hit it off right off the bat. I kind of knew he, 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 he wasn't just a normal um, – full of crap mm-hmm. sales guy. He actually knew what he was talking about. <laughs> so that kind of, you know, we, we talked and we had good conversation and he was going to give us the job. And then I don't know, somewhere along the line, they, they, uh, they screwed us over and uh, they gave it to somebody else. So then I called Mark and I just hired him away from there to come build this solar with me at Brandt. So that's kind of how we got together <laughs> because they pissed me off. That is so cool. Well, Craig, can you, uh, how did you, how'd you get to Brandt? Tell me your backstory of sort of preparation for the solar industry and how you ended up on this roller coaster. Yep. So I, um, I, I'm an electrical, I started as an electrical apprentice. I'm an electrician by trade. I've kind of worked my way up through the field, 
I'm from Michigan. When the economy crashed in Michigan, like a year before everywhere else, like in 2006, mm. I went out to Las Vegas uh, to work for Helix Electric, which is a pretty big player out west. Actually, they're mm -hmm. pretty national now. But um, when I was out there, we were smaller in uh, Vegas, but we were, you know, just building construction projects in Las Vegas and doing all that. And we got this opportunity to go sit down with First Solar. This was, yeah, 2007, 2008, maybe, um, where there was yeah. construction was kind of dying, but this First Solar approached us because, you know, we had 400 electricians in the field, blah, blah, blah. And um, so we started talking to those guys. This is back when they were using that 90-watt uh, thin film mm -hmm. panels, you know. So yeah. we bid a job. We just figured out how to bid it. Me and another guy figured out how to bid it, and then we managed it, and uh, we – you know, we made money. We figured out the production issues. We figured out, you know, every little thing on those utility scale. Uh, and then we started out, I think the first one we did was a 15 megawatt, but we ended up getting up to 290 megawatt site down in Agua. Wow. Yeah, which is huge back then. That was huge. It was, That's it was, huge today. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was a big one. <laughs> I mean, it was it was a huge job. So, I did the utility scale stuff out there. We didn't really do any small um, CNI stuff. It was more just uh, utility utility scale stuff. My son was grad uh, get is eighth grade. I didn't want him to go to high school in Las Vegas, so I picked a place on the map, and it was Texas because it kind of aligned with uh, how I think. And uh, so I came to Texas with Berg Electric, and uh, right away, uh, you know, st started building Berg Electric's. Um, uh, footprint in Austin, and because they didn't really had a small operation when I got there, uh, started building it. One of the things I wanted to do because I had the solar fresh on on my brain that was that I wanted to, you know, build that through Berg because I saw the money that was in it. I saw the you know we could keep guys, we could keep productive crews going if we could keep this work going and allow us to kind of ship yeah. electricians across the you know however we needed to do it. I talked them to yeah. do one job, and that was with Chevron Renewables down uh -huh. in uh, Presidio, which is down on the. Uh, border south texas so we did one 15 megawatt job uh berg didn't really like how, how the, the solar didn't really fit within their business model so um they didn't really want to pr uh, proceed with it anymore um from there i went to brant who is kind of just they were they're a big mechanical contractor but their central texas electrical footprint wasn't very large um so i went there and i kind of built their san antonio and austin electrical division up from like five million we got up to probably close to 60 million in a couple of years. And then um, wow. yeah. that's when this, when I met Mark um, and we ended up, you know, I wanted to build solar at Brandt and I knew that they would let me do it there. So that's when I stole Mark away and uh, the rest is history. I love it. it. One of the things that is uh, a really interesting sort of fast forward is that what, what you guys kept experiencing in the electrical contracting world and even at Brandt is something that is common to many of us. I worked as I share with you guys at a roofing contractor where at first glance, they're like, oh, the solar boom, this is amazing. Uh, but what we know about electrical and roofing contractors that are hyper-specialized, maybe commercial roofs or whatever, is that they enjoy very comfortable margins, right? Often north of 30%. How do solar projects fit into the business model at companies like that? Like, what's your experience with that, Craig? It's not so much electrical construction doesn't have super high profit margins. It kind of depends on what your service-oriented work, smaller jobs you can get higher margins in. Uh, but big um, new construction, high-rise hotels, things like that, if anybody tells you they make a lot of money doing that, they're lying. Because uh -huh. I've, done right. it, I've done it a lot. And uh, the solar kind of is, you know, to me it was the margins weren't great. But at, the more of it you did, the better you could get. If you could figure out all these production issues and right. figure out how to, you know, then you could, that's, that's, you're making nickels, but those nickels add up, you know? So that's what, uh, that's kind of what my approach was to that. And I, I convinced people to let me try mm -hmm. it and, um, you know, this worked. And right now, yeah. since, uh, we've, we've started this venture, you know, our, our profit margins are good. We have great crews. Uh, we have a lot of lessons learned, right? We've got a, between me and Mark, yeah. we've got a lot of experience in, in, in losing money and doing things wrong. So, uh, we've, we've, um, we've definitely gotten a lot better and, uh, we're, we're perfecting it right now. So you recruited Mark away from circular. Yes. Yeah. Congratulations. Good grab. That was a good call. One of my only ones I've ever made. <laughs> well, I'll tell you about another good call that I think you made. And I think it shares a little bit about kind of your uh, willingness to take risks, which is something you've done your entire career. I met you guys because uh, someone I follow and admire, Steve O'Neill, who's just stepped down, is now the chairman of REC, but he was running REC Group. He shared a project that by some respects may be a small project on the grand scope of how solar is done, but Turns out it's the largest of its kind in Texas, and it was a reshare from him of a guy, Craig Lovaldo, I'd never met before, who was you know, really happy about the first projects being towed out onto the surface of the water out in, uh, in Texas. 
while I know we're going to talk about that project, I actually just want to ask you, Craig, as a, you know, it's, it's, I think, atypical for a senior vice president, a, a leader, an executive in a company, I'll say tweet to just post a picture of a project on social media. What, what uh, inspired you to post that image and uh, how did it, did, you know, did it surprise you when Steve picked it up and it started gaining traction on LinkedIn? Yeah, actually, I, I, I've never, I don't, I don't have Facebook. I don't have Twitter. I don't even know how to use most of it. So I have LinkedIn <laughs> because it's a business platform. I like to see, you know, cool things, but I've never, ever posted anything in my life. But when, when, when Mark sold this project and, and we started talking about it, and like I said, we started Spear, we weren't that big of a company. So I was, I was out there with my tools and I wanted to be out there with these guys learning how to do it because nobody, nobody's done it. So I wanted to be out there, you know, doing it. And we, we were building it and I was watching it come together. And I was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever done. And I turned around and looked right. and I saw, the, I saw the floating array with the modules on there. And I was like, I'm going to take a picture of that. And I took the picture and the picture turned out so good. And I was like... Uh, I'm going to put this on LinkedIn. I don't know how, but I'm going to figure it out. So I figured out how to put it on LinkedIn. And the first guy who reshared it was uh, Steve O'Neill because we bought REC modules Fantastic. for the project. Yeah. And then he, he talked to me. Yeah. Um, he, he hit me up privately on LinkedIn. He's like, what an exciting project. That's so awesome. Uh, please continue to update, you know, as you go. So that's why I always put, I was always in the future posts. I was, you know, REC, I was putting REC. There's this many Tagging REC them, yeah. modules, you know, there's this many, or the CL and Terra system. So they just kept resharing it. And, the first one I ever posted, I think it ended up having like 26,000 views or something like that. It's crazy. It's amazing. Yeah. I can tell you, and I'm in a, a small community of folks that uh, intentionally try to help folks kind of get more views. 26,000 views for an, an average or especially first-time poster is a remarkable result on LinkedIn by any standard, by any metric. Kudos to you. That was amazing. And as I said in the intro of the episode – don't underestimate the power of following that intuition to share your projects. We need more folks like Craig who are proud of what they do and share it in the public domain so that others can get excited. And you never know, Steve O'Neill or you know me on Suncast might say, hey, this is amazing. I jumped in and I was con congratulating you. I reached out privately and said, hey, I'd love to hear more about the story. And that begat this episode. So thank you for doing that. I I'd like to circle back to you about the process of finding and nurturing a lead like this deal. Can you tell me kind of as a sales professional, how you uncover opportunities like this? You know, how I uncovered Altman Plants opportunity, you know, there's basically two ways to get to Houston. There's like a fast way through Highway 71, or there's, um, there's another way through 290, but you have to go through the and I like to go that route mainly because you get to see, you know, these communities. And what I look for is businesses that are in these rural communities because they could qualify for um, a USDA REAP grant. And what I look for is like a large um, user, like a large building, large complex that I could tell that they have a large load. And then I just start doing research on that company. I find out everything I can about who they are, you know, obviously who's their leadership team, what, you know, who are their customers and start to try to understand how I can like build a story. So if I get one of them on the phone, you know, I can tell a story of, you know, how we can help them save on energy and go solar to, you know, boost their, you know, sustainability message and their goals. And, you know, the one how I lead into the conversation is like, hey, listen, you know, there's a, um, a grant out there that is um, is given by the USDA offices. And it, the title of the grant is the Rural Energy for America Program, Renewable Energy Systems and Energy Efficiency mm -hmm. Improvement. It's really for businesses that are in the agricultural industry. However, small businesses can take advantage of it, but how they're classified as a small business is through the small business administration through their NAT code, their North America industry right. classification code. And it's really kind of based upon one, how much revenue they have or two, how many employees they have. And so, you know, driving down 290 from Austin to Houston, I kept on seeing um, this large greenhouse operation and i knew that they would qualify for that usda reef grant a because yeah. they're in the agriculture 
agricultural business. And B, I knew that for greenhouses, it was subject to how many employees you had. And then, you know, I, I did, you know, really some deep diving on who Altman Plants was. And I was able to see on the website that, that you know, it's a family business and that they're, um, they're biologists and uh, um, they look like they're from California. So I started putting all the pieces together. I was like, I imagine these people are pretty liberal and that, you know, they probably have a sustainability goal. Mm-hmm. I was able to find a statement on their website about sustainability. And I was like, listen. This grant is made for them. And so I started using my network to find out that anybody that um, that knew the Altman people. And then just one day yeah. I just drove down their dirt road and knocked on their main uh-huh. office door. You know, I met the, the facilities manager and he said, you know, he kind of was busy. You could tell. But, you know, he basically mentioned the owner's name. And um, so I reached out to the owner and. He called me you back. You emailed the owner, right? Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, so uh, I emailed him and asked for a time to talk, and he just called me one day out of the blue. Mm. And I said, listen, you know, there's this USDA REAP grant that pays for 25% of the total cost of the system. There is the investment tax credit that pays for another 26%. And, then, and on top of that, the accelerated depreciation that pays for another about 22%. You know, you're looking at about, you know, 70 to 75 percent of this project yeah. incentivized. And then if we leverage some debt, um, you you don't come anything out of pocket. The energy savings basically <laughs> services the loan. You're able to save on energy and then you're also able to, you know, add to your sustainability goals. And he was like, hey, you know, I'll take some time, you know, show me what you got. Hey, I've got a quick question for you. Did you ever think, man, I wish I could just text Nico. I have a question for him. Hey, Nico, where is your favorite Thai restaurant in Durham? Hey, Nico, what are the flight prices to Mexico City right now? Hey, Nico, where are you going to be staying in New Orleans this year for North America Smart Energy Week? If any of those questions have occurred to you or some other thing that you'd like to chat with me about, why don't you text me at 310-634-1780. I'm running a little test to see if I can actually get you as a listener to respond. So there you go. That's my number, 310-634-1780. Shoot me a text message. I'd like to know if you're going to North America Smart Energy Week 2021 in New Orleans. I'm going to be there. So why don't you take this opportunity to text 310-634-1780 and let me know, Nico, I'm going. Or Nico, you're crazy. Why in the heck would I be in New Orleans? We're still in a pandemic. Either way, I love you and I hope to see you there. And I hope that you'll text me. That number, again, is right there in your podcast player description if you click on it. Hey, you're listening to Suncast, so I know that you are a thinker who likes to seek out the opinions of others to help inform and guide your own path. And as such, you probably like to debate or at least like to watch interesting debates. Did you miss out May 26th when we had our first session of the Great Debate Series 2021, the road to New Orleans that we're co-hosting with Solar Power Events and my friend Tor Solar Fred Valenza? If so, fear not. Just go to mysuncast.com forward slash debate. There you can watch a riveting debate that we had on the different types of solar financing and which is best for consumer and installer. PPA, PACE, loans, you be the judge. Also, join us for the next installments. We'll have one in June, another in July, August, and live in September. I hope that you'll join us. I hope that you will go to mysuncast.com forward slash debate and learn more about the upcoming debates. If you'd like to partner with us on producing the Great Debate series, please feel free to reach out. You've probably just heard the other information about how you could text me or you could email me nico at mysuncast.com well mark i have uh, i've done a few ag projects and you know one of the things that i'm guessing you immediately jumped on was you know here's how we can repurpose some of your ag land and i'm curious to hear uh you know we know the punchline of kind of where this project ended up but i'm curious to hear the dialogue around 
what my presumption is was a natural conversation for you to say, hey, let's look at you know a fixed hill, fixed hill versus a tracker system on one of these plots of land. Where do you have where do you have excess space? So walk me through that conversation with them and sort of what the logical conclusion came to be as you were explaining the benefits and uh, and use cases. Yeah, you know, so you know, any solar developer, we use like a software like Helioscope, and you know, we do basically an array layout for a fixed hill and tracker and i could see where their main distribution line ran down the property and so obviously i try to get it as close to that area as possible and going back and forth with the customer and their engineer about where to place the array every customer in their the initial conversations they're always kind of surprised that uh, basically how much solar it takes in terms of area square footage and how much power it produces and how much energy that it yields, they're kind of yeah. surprised that it takes a lot of space, right? That's kind of, our, yeah. it's been our common challenge for a while. We boil it all down to a system price, the incentives, essentially the energy savings, also uh, the customer's payback and internal rate return. And like any businessman, they always compare that IRR to what they're, IRR on selling their product, right? That's their yeah. common, and it, it's very. I, I hate, I hate having those conversations with customers because, you know, the majority, you know, basically solar here in Texas, it yields like right around, around like twenty percent IRR. Most businesses, yeah. if they're selling a product, they're going to be making more than twenty percent, and so when they compare it yeah. to, hey, I can invest more dollars into my business and making more widgets or i can invest in this solar system you know obviously you're going to do what's going to make you more money you know mark it's funny you say that one of my mentors always says figure out how your customer makes money and help them make more of it so in that regard part of our job as a developer salesperson helping our client is to figure out how they make money how does altman make money what they're in, what are they in the business of such that the you know so that we can understand what they were comparing this solar project against yeah so um altman or altman Specialty plants they are a large uh, nursery that um, they sell plants on the wholesale market to retailers such as um, like lowe's and home depot they have these huge greenhouses where you know they start plants from seeds and they grow them up and they establish those plants and then you know, they ship them to the retailers. Yeah. And so they use that land for these greenhouses. And, you know, like, I'm sure like, like a lot of businesses, it's all about how much dollars or how much product you can pack into the square foot. So square foot. Yeah. That's how they tend to probably look at it is like, okay, how much dollars can I make on a per square? Foot? They were comparing it to the, the solar investment, and right away he was like, "Hey, man, we're planning on oh, yeah. expanding." You know, I don't want to, mm -hmm. you know, give his metrics, but you know, he said, "Look, you know, per square foot, I can make X, and you can make me Y. My X is greater than your Y. So it doesn't make sense for me." Yeah, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> and so, yeah. uh, so like, so like any good business development person, you start looking around, going, "Okay, yeah. well, where are we going to put this array? Because I'm going to close this customer." <laughs> exactly. And so, honestly, I've always been really fascinated with the floating PV. I, I thought I thought it was, uh, you know, it, it's a, a brilliant use of land. Um, I, you know, mm. I, I love like the lake and rivers and stuff like that. And you know, I I don't want to like you know do anything that's going to harm the environment. But I feel like if we can, you know, put a solar PV array. Um, on a body of water and, you know, we can still maintain, um, you know, the natural environment and not, you know, damage it. You know, I felt like this reservoir in the middle of their uh, nursery that was already being used for um, the irrigation of all their plants. It's like a big reservoir. They're capturing the rainwater. I was like, listen, you know, this could be a win-win, especially when I started talking to the facilities engineer and he was telling us that they had an issue with the algae bloom. Like in most areas here in Texas, mm. the algae bloom on the lakes because on these reservoirs, we it gets pretty humid here. And um, yeah. it, it 
it's also, um, you know, we tend to have these spurts of where we get a lot of like rain, but then there's air, there's times yeah. where we don't get like any rain. And that's like the perfect environment for the algae to actually grow. And so um, I knew from, you know, reading like, you know, trade industry, like material that, that the floating PV array cut down on algae bloom. But then once I really started digging into it, I started to really understand that also it cuts down on water evaporation. And obviously yeah. here in Texas, because it gets so hot in the summertime, we have a lot of water evaporation. And that's when, you know, I started seeing the moons line up. You know, I didn't know anything. I'll be honest with you. I didn't know anything about, about really the product, yeah. the floating PV array product. And so I started doing a bunch of research. There's some. Did you know in the conversation with him, did you know what his pain points were such that you could touch on them? I, I knew that, you know, they were motivated, that they wanted to do the right thing, that that they wanted to go solar because of the sustainability aspect of it. We were able to, you know, guide that conversation to where I was like, listen, uh, the owner of Altman, is his name's Ken Altman. And I was like, Ken, yeah. we, we got to stop comparing this to the IRR to your business IRR. This is not this is you're basically pre-purchasing one of your resources to where you're buying that resources at a cheaper rate than what you would be normally buying for it over a period of time. And that's where we need to look at it. Yeah. We need to look at it into it. Levelized cost of energy or your effective cost of energy rate, however you want to you know, phrase it. But we need to say, listen, you're buying energy from the electrical co-op at you know X and mm -hmm. If the levelized cost of energy with all these incentives is Y and, you know, X is greater than Y, then Y is the better option in this standpoint. Yeah, yeah. Do, do you ever, just as a quick aside, because what you're talking about is giving them a fixed hedge on operating expenses. Did you ever get to the point where you talked about, like, how that would improve the actual valuation of the business because you could fix the op OPEX? Exactly. And, you know, funny enough, they were already kind of going through this process, this internal process. I, I, I don't want to say too much, but you know, yeah, they, were, they were acquiring other businesses. And so uh -huh. they already kind of had that mindset of looking at these other businesses and looking at their OPEX and how to make right. that more efficiently. And so it, it was an easy conversation because that is the conversation mm -hmm. that I go down with customers. And as soon as and we that. started talking about OPEX efficiency and that, you know, really it, it's, it's very tough to, to change um, where you start seeing immediate results, but then have this long-term right. you know, efficiency, you know, typically you, you, you kind of make a little tweak and you get some gain and then that's it. And with solar, you get yeah. some gain right away and then you, it, it starts to kind of compound on the, the, the savings Just, compound on it. Yeah. Right. Uh-huh. And it sits there and you got to trust that it's going to do its thing. Well, you, you, you mentioned, you know, part of the lens that you use in business development is thinking about these grants and reap grants. And part of, for you, the biz dev, this is how can I help pay for it? What did you find with regard to floating solar and reap and, uh, you know, any sort of similar projects? Cause I imagine as a customer, they were like, well, has this been done before? I don't want to be a guinea pig. Exactly. So had been a project in California that had that had taken advantage of a USDA REIT grant and was using a floating PV array. Obviously, it was in a winery. There was some there was like a case study on the actual USDA's website about it. You know, I, I think with these grants, you kind of have to tell the uh, tell a story of why this is a good um, candidate for these grants. It just really makes an interesting story that you have an ag producer that uses a ton of water and um, water is a substantial, a, mm. a substantial part of their business and that you're going right. to be, you know, utilizing this technology that is not only going to help them on their energy savings, but is going to help them conserve on their water. And that's what these right. USDA reap grants are for is really to help the business, you know, do better financially. And so, you you're able to kind of tie in, you know, a couple of these these efficiencies and, and tell a really compelling story. And, and 
you know, I, I did see that someone else did this in California and I kind of, it was basically, I, I guess, you know, part of some conference that, um, that I, I saw and I sent that to Ken and we, you know, we talked about it and I told him, I was like, listen, we've never done this before. This is going to be our first rodeo with this. And I'm going to need some time, you know, trust me that I'm going to circle back around, but uh, I, I need yeah. to educate myself about the product and then I need to really kind of help Craig educate himself about the application install. And so that's when Craig and I, we kind of started looking at different products, you know, and there's not a whole lot of manufacturers out there. There's some startups, there's some, um, some companies in, in Asia that they look like they do some really large projects. There's one that kind of kept on standing out to us that they had the best material online in terms of like their supporting documentation, mainly their YouTube videos. I mean, they really kind of show <laughs> how this, all this stuff go together. And that's where I don't, I don't know if everyone does this, but how Craig and I do it is we see these YouTube videos and we see how long on the video it takes them to do a particular install and then we're oh, like, yeah. okay, well, this is that's our labor metric means right there. We're able to see like, okay, to put this widget so, together, it takes so long. And then we start to, okay, if we have this long to do this project, then we start to do the math to understand how many people we need. And, yeah. you know, then we understand the labor component with time and personnel and and the labor rate, then once we, we can start to kind of see kind of how the pieces start to go together. The, the main challenge that, that we wanted help with from the manufacturer is engineering support and the installation report uh, support. And then we wanted to make sure that obviously that they were bankable and that they had a, a product that looked durable and that went together. I'd love to hear from you, Craig, from a technical aspect, you know, Mark has done a phenomenal job of helping understand both how the customer made this decision, but also, uh, you know, how you initiated the product selection process, which is itself that, you know, that can be daunting, especially with a new product like this. As the lead on the engineering and construction side, could you talk a bit to the conversations you're having while Mark's selling the project, the conversations you're having with the, with the technical and operations team, um, what were some of the early assumptions that you all had to make in order to move the project forward? Uh, and what were some of the challenges in pre-construction you had to overcome? Well, it started real quick with Mark telling me we're going to put it on the water and me saying, what? <laughs> we're going to we're what? So then, like he said, we sat down, we had to try to put a price to all this stuff, you know? So we're trying to figure out, we get manufacturer's prices, but we're trying to figure out how's it going to go together. So we're watching YouTube videos and going, well, if they can do it that fast, we can do it that fast, right? So we start nice. making those assumptions and we come up with a price that we think is right. But then as he's kind of finishing, um, you know, getting the kind of getting the design laid out and all that stuff, he's working with our engineering staff, plus working with CL and Terra's engineers uh, going through it. I'm kind of trying to plan logistically for what this looks like when it all shows up. And one of the, the biggest challenge to me was uh, when 15 semi trucks full of plastic parts that have no rhyme or reason to them show up mm. and you we're just offloading trucks you know we're offloading four or five trucks a day we have a big laydown yard but i don't at this point i don't know what which which parts should i put over here which parts should i put over here so i'm just taking them off the truck yeah and i'm putting them everywhere so then day one when we're trying to you know kind of organize what we're doing and how we're going to kind of come up with an assembly line of how to how to build these modules uh, on on the floating pieces we ended up taking a day and just reorganizing the the yard the lay down yard to to be more right. efficient with how we were doing things did you have i imagine because it's a floating array one of the big questions that comes up is how do you actually anchor the project how did you talk about that with the facilities engineer daryl uh and and how did you guys work together to come up with a good solution you know, one of the challenges that we had on the anchoring is that um, we didn't have the topography of the reservoir. We had a crude one that Daryl, um, the facility engineer, had came up with in AutoCAD, but we didn't actually have one from a survey. Um, nor did we actually have the, the geotech reports from the site. You know, this mm. is in the rural part of Texas 
they're not having to pull permits. And so they're not really getting engineers involved. They're just kind of overbuilding everything out there. So mm-hmm. uh, they didn't really have that data that uh, the manufacturer still um, needed in order to, you know, give us the engineering in terms of like the anchoring. So there's a couple of different ways you can anchor these uh, floating PV arrays is, um, you know, obviously you can anchor it directly to the bottom with anchors. Um, you could ballast it at the bottom or you can anchor it at the banks of the reservoir. One thing is, is that Daryl was telling me that that reservoir, A, it's kind of on like a, like a seasonal creek that they dam up. And so they get some pretty good flow. And so that, to me, I was like, well, that means we really need to anchor this thing down really good. Second, he was telling me, you know, sometimes we get some pretty good droughts here in Texas, that that reservoir, it can get pretty low. And so I was worried that if it got really low, that the floating PV array would be almost sitting at the bottom, sitting on top of these like ballast blocks or sitting on top of their anchors. And I just really didn't think that was going to be, you know, good method. So, you know, working with the manufacturer, you know, we decided to anchor at the banks, which is um, I think is probably also a more cost effective way of doing it. And so, you know, to be honest with you, though, I didn't think that it was going to be so many anchors. Craig, how many uh, anchors do we have out there? We have 35 anchor points with two cables coming off of each one. So it's actually anchored 70 different places around that array. Mm. What was the specifications on the cable? It was, it was a pretty thick cable. Yeah, it they did it. They do a really good job. Once we once we like Mark said, we didn't have the proper um, geotech information to you know to to find out how deep we had to go right for for uh, CL and Terrace engineers to come up with something. So we said, let's just do it for worst case scenario. So they gave us twenty foot anchor rods. 20 foot long that we had to drive in 35 different places. And then off of each one of those is like I said, two, I think it's five, eight inch cable that goes out. Um, wow. And then it attaches to a smaller cable and a rope. That's kind of like the breaking point. So the rope is supposed to break first and the cable will hold. But if the rope breaks, then you know, you have some sort of an issue going on. So that's kind of like their flag to say, you know, Hey, you got an issue. That's right the here. canary. Yeah. yeah. You know, we just, we did it. And uh, that was, that was challenging itself too, because, you know, trying to figure out, where where all Altman's underground pipes are? I mean, there's things. This place has been added onto a bunch of times. There's pipes running all over the place underground. But to Daryl's yeah. credit, he knew where every single one of those was. He had them drawn up like basically mm. a napkin sketch, and he could tell me where everything <laughs> was at any time I asked him. So we didn't hit anything. We drove. We drove. Like I said, thirty five anchors, twenty feet deep, and didn't hit anything, which was unbelievable. And we had to do mm. we had to do a push pull test on those anchors, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. We had a machine out there that pulled on them and yeah, th- they weren't coming out. I mean, when, once they went in there, they weren't coming out. And with it, we anchored 35 different places, you know, around the, around the entire um, uh, reservoir. That thing's, I mean, if that thing runs out of water, it's just going to be suspended hanging there. That's, you know, hanging there just with no water underneath it. If it, if it does go down. I was just going to say, I have to admit the cylinder guys, the level of support, and patience and understanding that they had with us, obviously that they, they probably have to walk a lot of people through this. This is probably the first time that like we'll have all this kind of application, but I mean, they, they never really got frustrated. Their engineers were right there. I mean, a lot of engineers, like if you don't give them all the data that they want, then they put up a brick wall. And these guys were constantly trying yeah. to find a solution. How, how did they support how they support this project where the customer was nervous, you were nervous? Um, how did they actually show up? Honestly, um, they said they sent um, Antoine, uh, who is kind of like one of the lead engineers on the project. Mm-hmm. He came out and uh, well, he didn't know what to make of us. He's a, a little French guy shows up and he's got a, a bunch of hillbilly rednecks out there trying to put together his <laughs> stuff. And uh, he didn't. Yeah, he was like, whoa, but he was very good. He'd worked us. You know, he's like, no, 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 you need to do it this way. And we did everything wrong, of course you know, 10 times. <laughs> and then he was telling us how we had it set up wrong. And we just, you know, listened to him and he had a good advice on everything. He was there for, he was there for, he was supposed to be there for four days on day three. He's like, you guys got it. There's nothing else I'm going to do to help you. So if you don't mind, I'm going to go home for Christmas. And I'm like, yeah, no, go ahead. And that's, that's what he did. So we had it down, took us, you know, two and a half, three days, but they were, he was there every step of the way. 
Craig, did you have any sort of underlying construction philosophy about how you were going to lay down and, and roll this out? In my mind, yes. I had it built in my head. Uh, I had a perfect plan day one, and it all went to hell day one. It blew before up. lunch. It Welcome went to, to construction, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm like, well, I've seen this movie before, so now let's let's uh, let's let's regroup. And then my general superintendent John and I, we sat down and uh, you know, we we're watching things happen and watch, watching how our guys were building things, and we're picking up ten minutes here, just coming up with different ideas. And we literally did that for a week straight. We kept um, you know just making tweaks, adjustments, set up building stations, had tractors pulling. Uh, you know, 12 modules at a time that were built over. We were building it in, uh, you know, in, in rows of uh, nine panels across by 32, 32 panels long and pushing it out with forklifts and towing it out there with jet skis. And we just kind of adapted wow. this whole first, um, the whole first two weeks was just a big um, trying to figure out what the hell we were doing. The, the system itself is yeah. engineered perfectly. It goes together great. It's the logistical part that, that caught us a little bit by surprise. How many guys did it take to put this? I think it's like a two megawatt system, right? That's a one one megawatt. Just on, it's like nine hundred eighty five mark, nine hundred eighty four. Okay, just under a megawatt. So when Mark and I bid it, we figured it was going to take twenty guys, what a month and a half, twenty guys, six weeks to build the floating structure, not anchor it, no nothing, just build the floating structure. We ended up using uh, nine guys in four weeks. Wow. So yeah, Nine once, guys, of course, is remarkable. Once we got it, once we got it, once we got that logistical piece set up and the prefab station set up, it was money. Yeah. I mean, we were just rolling. Yeah. Megawatt a month. I love it. Were there any other uh, issues? I mean, the thing that another thing besides anchoring that comes to mind for me are the DC home runs. Like, how do you figure all that stuff out uh, when it's your first project? And, and how do you see has helped uh, the bespoke project? Everything's different or everyone is different. Yeah. It's, you know, again, I'm an electrician. So, putting wires in the water is not really something I'm used to even thinking about. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, that was a stretch, but we figured out, you know, our, we have uh, two good engineers on staff that kind of, you know, I talked with them daily. They came out to the site. We talked through it. What's the best way to do it. And, you know, we, we, we got the home runs. There's um, what is there? Six, six, four inch HTPE flexible conduits that actually self float a little bit on the water. And then we buoyed them over wow. to the shore into a um, basically a big quasi box, and then we uh, go under the ground up into our inverter racks where our ag panels and uh, disconnects are. So again, mm. it was just a lot of planning. But the, our engineers, on, uh, our guys that we have with us, uh, plus with um, CL and Tears guys on the on the plastic parts. I mean, once we once we got it figured out, it was uh, wasn't bad at all. Pushback, Marker Craig, from the AHJ, the local jurisdiction, to get this permitted. Like, what what issues did you have to do, and also what sort of handholding do you have to think about ahead of time to get a project like this through the through the ringer? So the beauty of uh, doing a job in Giddings, Texas, Texas, is there is no um, yeah there is no ah, inspections there unincorporated. No yep. So yeah, we didn't have Fantastic. any of that. Our biggest challenge was making Daryl happy. And, um, you know, keeping Daryl and Daryl was out there with us every day because I think when he, we first showed up, he was like, what in the hell is going on here? But then he, we, he started working with us every day. And, uh, you know, he, he got we, we just got to be really good, uh, you know, working um, relationship. And, uh, you know, it, it, he was very happy. We we're very happy. I mean, it just it's just ended up being a great project. I love it. Uh, you know, you said something that really uh, impressed me. You know, you'd never put any, you never post anything to LinkedIn. Uh, but you're so proud of the project. You said I built big, big projects. But uh, when you saw that training of the project on day one, you, you put your boots on and had more fun on that day than you had in 15 years stuck in an office. Did this change the way that you see your role as the guy who heads up construction for Spear? Yeah, I mean, 100 percent. Like I said, I'm an electrician. Uh, at heart. Right. I went into the office because, um, you know, I couldn't get my wife to live on uh, nor what I would call good money. So no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but um, so I went into the office because I wanted to get to the top. Right. And, and after 15 years of, of being at the upper levels of these companies, um, I went out there. I was just going to go out there for the first you know, few days for the training days and just kind of watch mm -hmm. it, make sure everybody. But, man, I was having so much fun. I stayed out there the whole time. I stayed out there. Mark had to yell at me and tell me to get back in the office and help him build the company because I was having so much fun. But uh, yeah. I loved it, man. And every day, I miss that. You know, when you when you when you're done with the day and you look and you can see what you did. When he's working in an office, I never went home and said, "Oh, I, I go home and go, Jesus, I didn't get anything done today." You know, but out there, you can yeah. see what you did, and I, I miss that. And I, lo man, I had so much fun. It was great, Mark. We could tell the story, so it sounds like everything went well. We, I know this project died 
several deaths as they often do. Uh, the last one I'd like for you to explore with us is because you were so involved in not only deciding what the technology would be, but how it would get ultimately funded. Like the linchpin in all of this was the REAP grant, but it turns out that REAP applications get scores and this one didn't come in quite in the quite at the level that you were expecting. Tell me about that and how did you overcome uh, the the poor scoring of the project initially to get it across the finish line? Yeah, I mean, this grant application, I believe, was like 770 pages long. And um, oh, God. We, I put a month solid working on this um, this grant. And um, at, the, at the end of the grant, when you submit it, you have to submit this scoring spreadsheet with it. And I pretty much know if you don't get a B – um, that scoring, you're probably not going to get the grant just because there's other people competing for the same dollars. You know, they ask basically like how much energy offset, you know, what kind of business they are. If they're ag business, they score a little bit more. They ask essentially what's their like payback and their, their simple payback, which doesn't include any incentives. is basically like the total price of the system divided by their mm -hmm. average savings. And in Texas, you know, Energy's cheap. And so yeah. um, I didn't score. We didn't score that high. And, you know, one way you can score lower is if you ask for less dollars. And so I got with Ken on the phone and I wanted just basically to show him what we were up against. Um, I said, listen, we may want to think about asking for less dollars. We went through the whole scoring sheet and at the at the bottom there's the very last question is if you're using any kind of emerging technologies and ken was like what are you talking about we're using a floating pv array that's an emerging technology right there and i was like oh. like i felt like an idiot i was like yeah this you're right i completely <laughs> forgot about that and so um you know we got the extra points because of that category bumping us up to where we were definitely in the um like high like a b plus mm. and so uh how cool is that how yeah, cool is that I so mean, the local economics the local economics because the the local co-op pricing is super competitive seemed like it might not allow or it might limit the total amount you could get from the reap grant if you get it at all but the decision that you made based on the economics of the deal for ken the decision you made to go to the floating array ended up being the linchpin that scored the REAP grant. That's right. Yeah. How cool is that? Bringing it full circle. Love it. Yeah. I think I was just too Guys, close to it. I couldn't see it. I needed someone else to point yeah, it out. Yeah, it, it happens. Gents, there are so many phenomenal insights that you've shared there. And, you know, I love to back out again to 30,000 feet turn as we turn third base here towards home to wrap what's been an incredible conversation with you. I'd like to hear a bit uh, as you think about the process of not just building this project, but building multiple businesses for the folks that you've worked with. And now as business partners working with Sphere, what are some of the takeaways for you, either from, you know, others that you've worked with or from, you know, sort of core realizations you've had about building a solar company that you'd share with us? You know, I would say like the big takeaways that um, we had, I mean, like any company, it, it's all about our employees. And um, right now, currently in Texas, it is really tough to hire good people. He, he does a really good job with it. He has like a loyal following of guys. And um, mm -hmm. I mean, he's kind of like a natural leader, but he kind of has like this Marine kind of like no bullshit kind of like, yeah. you know, stride to, you know, how he deals with it. But, you know, I, I think, when we kind of take a step back and we kind of look at, you know, just as business owners, you, you kind of look at the resources you have in terms of, you know, cash flow, um, labor in your like industry partners, like manufacturers, what subcontractors would have, what have you. And you, you kind of say, all right, look, you know, we, we got these resources and we, we can, where do we need to focus them to where we can obviously maximize our dollar? You know, uh, I was just actually having this conversation with a buddy of mine in another state that we, had, we would all want, you know, 500 kW rooftop um, projects to where they take us a month, we're in and out, we make good money, they're nice and safe, we know how to do them. Mm -hmm. um, it just, you know, honestly, 
everyone's competing for those jobs. And um, mm-hmm. you, you basically have to get really tight on your margins in order to secure those projects. I think our perspective is, is that we kind of want to have like a mixture. We want to have some, some, some projects that we develop ourselves. We want to have some projects that we build for some other people. And then we, we also want to invest into some projects that we, act, we also have ownership in it. But, you know, we get to we get to build it. It just those projects, you know, have a longer sell cycle to them. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think, you know, we kind of really you know think about our business. We're really kind of we're, we're setting this business up for long term ownership. We're not looking to sell out anytime soon. And so we, we want to, you know, we want to grow organically, meaning not take on any kind of investors. We want to, you know, develop our employees to be, you know, long-term and to have long-term careers with our company. And so it's tough, man. It's, it's, you know, we want to be competitive, but we also want to do right by our our employees. And so that's, I I think that's what we kind of worry about. I would say the majority of the time when Craig and I are talking or arguing and stuff like that, it's really about how to, you know, kind of deal and make our employees lives better. I feel like there's always going to be work out there. There's going to be plenty of it. And yeah. it's our job to pick the right job for us, not only mm-hmm. to make good money, but which for our employees, like I, like I want to go after these big jobs and Craig's like, no dude, like we're going to, you're going to ruin our, our, our employees. You're sending them way out in the middle of nowhere. And they're going to be sitting there, you know, doing the production work over and over. And they're going to get tired of it. They're going to miss their families and they're going to quit. We need to have like a mixture of, you know, these projects out there, you know, it, I, I would, I would say that that's the toughest challenge. I mean, I think getting money from a lender or from an investor, that's not tough to do going and get jobs. Yeah. That's not tough to do. And the tough thing is employee retention and their growth. Craig, you come from a background with Helix where, you know, a 200 megawatt project doesn't scare you. Uh, you know, recent news suggests that Texas is the king of the hill for utility scale solar. You guys are just wrapping up a remarkable, uh, bespoke, very difficult engineering project that's one megawatt. Uh, how do you see the evolution of Spear and your partnership with uh, Mark and with your clients and your team? You know, what are you thinking about as in regards to your role, VP of Instruction? Think about your uh, the expansion into a market where the sky's the limit. You could easily do what Mark says, which is go put crews, you know, cranking out widgets of projects out in the middle of Texas for the next three to five years and, and probably make pretty good money on that. You can. I mean, yeah, that's one way to do it. But I think, you know, I have my hardest thing in this world is uh, is keeping Mark from going and selling everything in the country. He, there's nothing that he can't sell. I mean, I know that he's 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 a great sales guy because his personality he drives me crazy sometimes. But you know, we're we're a good team because we keep each other in check. He tells me when I'm being ridiculous and, and too conservative, and I tell him when he's out of his mind going to chase things in Washington or wherever he's going. Um, but I don't see a need, honestly, to get there. There's a lot of big companies. I've worked for some massive electrical contractors and there's, you know, there's the Rosenins of the world out there that can go put 600 guys on a, on a 350 meg site in South Texas. And, and, and right. do they make any money? I don't know. I, I mean, honestly, I don't know if they do or not. Maybe they do. I don't, uh, maybe, maybe I'm getting old now, but I would rather just build, um, I'd rather not be that production guy. To me, anybody can go get mm. 200 temps and do production work and, and struggle and, you know, have people just get burnt out. I, I don't want to do that. I think with our employees that we have, and like Mark said, a lot of these guys have been with me and with him for going on 10 years now. Some of them I brought with me from Las Vegas. So they've been two companies, yeah. you know, coming over. So cool. I, I feel like I have a responsibility and Mark feels the same way that, you know, these, these guys put a lot of faith in us. They left big companies to come work for us two idiots, you know, starting up something from nothing. So I feel like that we have a responsibility to keep those guys happy. And, and you know, Mark and I do a pretty good job of, of keeping each other in check on what makes sense and what doesn't. I mean, I, I feel like, you know, we want to get to an overall business structure of, you know, maybe somewhere between 30 and 30 and 40 million, maybe as a, as a whole. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a one quarter of one of those utility projects out there. I don't, mm-hmm. you know, I just, yeah. I, I don't think anything good comes of it, honestly. I mean, it's good for the state. I love it. 
but let somebody else do it. I'll go 10, 15, 20 megawatts even, uh, but you start talking about hundreds. Uh, I don't have the stomach for that anymore. Well, if there are folks that are listening that are looking for good partners in Texas, uh, you know, you've, I would suggest that you found two right here uh, in Craig and Mark who are trustworthy and, and understand the field of play where they have uh, expertise and, and specialty. I expect that folks in the Suncast tribe are going to want to reach out to you guys. Uh, where would be a good place? Uh, obviously, I would hope that folks are going to follow you, Craig, uh, as you're a rising LinkedIn influencer on LinkedIn. But where else could folks, uh, how could they find you? We didn't talk much about Spear the Company today. So where, where could folks learn more about you? And, uh, and are you going to be sharing more about this project in the public domain? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, the best way to reach us is probably through me because um, I'm the guy that's mainly behind the computer. Craig's running around yeah. out in the field. My email is mark, M-A-R-K dot Rangel, R-A-N-G-E-L at spearino.com. And that's S-I-R-I-N-N-O dot com. Our website is spearinnovations.com. All right, Solar Warrior. Well, that is a wrap on today's episode. And I know that it was an insightful look for you as it was for me into the world of photovoltaics. If you learned something today that uh, was new to you, I'd love it if you would go find our post over on LinkedIn and share it with a friend. Also, just leave a comment. Let Craig know how much you appreciate that he has learned to share his content on LinkedIn. Go connect with he and Mark and uh, make your voice known as he has done. See how it will help elevate your own uh, your own story, but help contribute to theirs today. Go give them some love on LinkedIn. And hey, if you're eager to keep learning, well, you, my fellow Philomath, can find resources and the highlights from this discussion and hey, every other discussion uh, along with recommendations and more over on the episode notes at mysuncast.com. Don't miss every week, Tuesday, Thursday, we've got our Tactical Tuesdays and Practical Longform Thursday episodes where we do deep dives just like this with experts in the field of climate tech and solar energy, helping you learn how to level up in your career and in your business. Thanks once again, finally, to our sponsors for helping make this content free to you, our solar warriors. You can learn more about them as well as learn how you can partner with thousands of listeners in the Suncast tribe at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, solar warrior. It's half the battle. <laughs>